This morning we're going to be in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and as you flip there, um, here's some free advice. Um, I'm not sure the next time you plan on going whitewater rafting, but when they give you the two different options of like, would you want to be in a raft or would you like to be in a kayak, let me recommend to you the raft. And here's why. The experiences are quite different. In a raft, you have a guide with you in the boat. And this guy knows the river like the back of his hand. I mean, he shouts out odd things like, you know, this rock is called Jaws. And this stretch over here is called Root Canal. Um, and you're like, wow, that's, uh, that's a little weird. But I'm comforted by the fact that you know this river so well. Um, and there was one time where I did sign up for the kayak option uh, on a river that I've never gone down before. And that experience was difficult. I, I flipped out several times. And at least one time, I thought I was a goner. And so my point is this. It's a much more enjoyable experience when you have a guide. When you have someone who knows the twists and turns, who knows the rocks, the currents, the dangers. Because by yourself, you're learning the hard way where the rocks are, where the currents are. And so this is what Psalm 73 is going to do for us. Asaph is the author of this psalm, and he's the guide in the boat with you. This psalm is a particular type of psalm. It's a, it's a wisdom psalm, meaning its aim is to help you navigate the complexities of life in a fallen world. It's trying to teach you the art of godly living. And it's not always easy. There are deceptive twists and turns. There are currents you can't see. There are rocks to avoid. So in our psalm, Asaph is essentially going to tell us about this one rock that almost ruined his life. And that rock's name is Envy. And he's going to show us that rock, and then he's going to show us how he got his gospel sanity back. So if you have your Bible, let's read Psalm 73. <clears throat> A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a, weary, a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray as we consider it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would um, open up our eyes to see and behold wonderful things written in your word. We need your help now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want us to see that this psalm is teaching us one big thing. And that is, as God is your portion, your life is made content. As God is your portion, your life is made content. So this is the key to gospel sanity, to true Christian joy. It's having God as your, por- as your portion. And so what do I mean by that word portion? We'll go ahead and define it. In, in context... Um, according to Israel's history, when God delivered his people out of Israel from, or out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, he divided up the land into portions. And each tribe got a portion, and that was their land, their home, their life, their livelihood. But to the tribe of Levi, he did not give any land. But they were to live amongst the tribes and serve as his priests. And so God said, especially to them, to to the tribe of Levi, I am your portion. And so that is to say, I'm going to provide for you through the sacrificial system, through the tithes and gifts of all the other tribes. I'm your life. I'm your livelihood. So to have God as your portion is to have God as your everything, your source, the, the source, the wellspring of your life. So... As you have God as your portion, your life is made content. And I'll define that term really quickly for you as well. What is contentment? Um, I've been reading this very good book I've been enjoying by Jeremiah Burroughs. He's an old English Puritan. And he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in it, he does a pretty good job at defining what contentment is. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So some of the key just beautiful words a part of that definition. Contentment is a a frame of spirit. It delights in God's fatherly goodness to us in every situation. Like that's beautiful. Like who who doesn't want that? Like, who doesn't want to walk through every situation in life with the clear conviction 
that God is my good father and I am his beloved child and that he loves me as he loves Jesus and he sees me as he sees Jesus. That's the source of contentment. But Asaph will show us that it's easy for our minds to get derailed. Envy can sneakily change our focus from God into ourselves. And so Asaph in this psalm is going to show us two things. He's going to point out the poison, which is envy. And secondly, he's going to point out the antidote, which is worship. So first, let's consider the, po- the poison. Look with me in verse 1. Asaph confesses, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So this is the truth that he's affirming, that he's holding on to, that God is good. He's nothing but good. He's always doing good. He's never not doing good. In all his ways, in all his doings, it is, everything is coming out of a heart of love, out of a heart of a father who loves you. And he loves to work good for you. Um, my friend Brian Sorgenfry uh, made this point that there are some places in Scripture where it says that God is provoked to anger. Like, anger is not his natural disposition. It's not his natural dis- disposition to be angry and to judge. He has to be provoked to it. But nowhere in Scripture do you hear it said that God has to be provoked to goodness. It's his natural disposition. It just naturally flows out of him. And so Asaph begins this psalm by affirming this. God is good, but this doctrine, this thing that he's holding on to, is about to come under fire. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says he was envious of the arrogant, not for their arrogance, but, because, but for their prosperity. And this helps us understand what envy is and, and how it works in our lives. Envy is wanting someone else's life. It's wanting aspects of someone else's life. Instead of looking up and delighting in God's fatherly goodness towards us, Asaph looks to the right, Asaph looks to the left, And he sees prosperity over here. He sees comfort over there. He makes comparisons. He makes judgments by what he sees. And he concludes, you know, I'm getting getting a pretty bad deal over here. I think I deserve better. Even the wicked are getting it better than me. They are getting the good life that I want. And so I think Asaph is being very insightful here when he says uses the word the prosperity of the wicked. That's the object of his envy. Um, Because that that word prosperity comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And that word shalom means completeness or fullness. And translators often use the English word peace to translate that. And I think that's pretty good. But I think the word flourishing might hit it better. Because in English, when you hear the word peace... What your mind goes to is, all right, it's, it's the absence of war. It's like a state of calm. But shalom, it certainly is that, but it's so much more. It's not just the absence of war, but it's the presence of flourishing. It's, it's heaven on earth. 
And so Asaph is saying, I was envious of the shalom of the wicked. They are getting the good life that I want. And so now we have to pause here and point out that this is exactly, this is exactly how paradise was lost back in Genesis chapter 3. You realize that Satan used envy with Adam and Eve, and, and it resonated. It struck a chord with them. And as one commentator said, it made, envy made paradise seem like an insult. And so Satan has this tactic of envy, and it, it's, it's worked so well that he hasn't had to modify it much to this day. And so we see him essentially say in Genesis chapter 3 to, to Eve, poor you. Mean old God told you not to eat of that tree. And you don't even realize how much he's withholding from you, do you? You won't die if you eat it. He's just wanting to keep you out of the God club. Because he knows if you eat it, you'll become like him. And he wants to keep you as slaves. He wants to keep you from shalom, the good life. Look, he's not your father. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. You can't trust him. You're, you're an orphan. So you need to fend for yourself. You need to reach out and take the good life for yourself. That's how envy works in us. It, it holds out the good life. It's, it's, it's something out there. And we need to reach out and grab it. But it's poison. Envy is poison. Through envy, you have to see. Paradise on earth, the Garden of Eden, became the world as we know it. Through envy. Envy ruined everything. And that's, that's what envy always does when we traffic in it in our lives. And so you got to see in our passage how this works in Asaph's life. In verse 4, he says, They have no pangs till death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So more likely what he means by that phrase is their bodies are strong. They're healthy. They have great bodies. Verse 5, he says, they are not stricken. But guess who is stricken? Skip down to verse 14. He says, all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he's saying there's, there's no self-denial going on in, in the wicked's life. There's no pursuit of holiness. Yet verse 12, they're always at ease. They're increasing in riches. But me, look at verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. They are plunging into every sort of evil and are getting the good life that I want. Yet I'm over here trying to be pure. And I'm just getting stricken by God and rebuked. How can God be good to me in all this? So, look at it another way. Imagine this scenario. You have two freshman girls that come to Auburn. One has been a believer from a very young age, and she's set on keeping her heart pure throughout college. And so, um, she, she goes to RUF. She goes to church. She's, she gets very involved. She, she prays. She reads her Bible. She commits to staying uh, sexually pure, avoiding drinking, avoiding wild parties, so that's the first girl. Well, let's consider the second one. This girl comes to Auburn, and it's her time to live it up. There's not a party she misses. She never goes to RUF or church. She doesn't know where she put her Bible once she moved in freshman year. And she never denies herself, but is always chasing the good life. And so let's fast forward to senior year. And this wild girl 
becomes a Christian. Jesus does a work in her heart. His grace overflows to her, and she's changed and transformed from the inside out. And she starts going to RUF. And at RUF, there's this great guy, great guy, awesome guy that everyone, every girl wants to end up with. And so the first girl has been keeping herself pure, obedient all these four years, but it's this wild girl who now becomes a Christian who starts to date this guy that everyone wanted. And it goes well, and she has a ring by spring. But this good girl graduates alone, single. And we can imagine her frustration. She's infuriated. She's infuriated with Asaph and saying, four years I've kept myself pure, and she's the one that gets the guy. How are you good in this? I deserve better. So we have to see in moments like that, God is not our portion. He's not our life. He's not our joy. We look at the lives of others and and think, like, we're doing better. We have more obedience points to cash in than they do with God. And yet, my life is miserable. Yet He's not delivering. And so, in that view, in that framework, God is just a means to an end. And that... And that end is the good life in our own, on our own terms. You see, it's the good life that we really want, not God. But God is not a means to an end. He's, he's the end in and of himself, and he's who we were made for. So to want God to give us the good life that we perceive it will, will be the good life, we're actually asking not for more joy, but less joy. Not for more love but less love. We're asking him to be, as C.S. Lewis said, a grandfather in heaven rather than a father in heaven. Look, grandparents are awesome, but let's be real. If you're a grandparent, you do things that your grandkid, for your grandkids that you would have never dreamed of doing with your own kids, like, I don't know, brownies for breakfast. Uh, grandkids just want their kids to be, to like them. And so they say yes to just about everything. But a good father, a good father is not afraid to oppose a child when the child's desires are detrimental to their good. And so Asaph lost sight of this truth. And this truth gets expressed in Proverbs chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 12, that God is his good father, and a good father disciplines the child that he loves. And so this doesn't make the pain and sorrow go away. If he denies us something, like we can say that's hard. And it's okay for us to mourn mourn that. But we have to remember it's always for our good. The good life is not getting what we think we deserve, getting what we think will bring the good life, but it's having God as your loving father. That brings us to our next point. So as God is your portion, your life will be made content. And this poison of envy affects us all, but there is an antidote to this poison, and it's worship. Look with me in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So that is, Asaph is saying he was at wit's end. He did not come back to his senses on his own. He did not Um, come back to gospel sanity just by reasoning it out with himself. 
he was stuck. And so how did he get out? How did he get unstuck? He says it in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So the antidote, the healing to this poison of envy for Asaph was worship. Asaph went to the sanctuary and all the clouds of confusion dissipated. And he got his sanity, his peace, his joy back. So what happened? We don't know exactly what happened. Asaph doesn't tell us. But we do know that his whole perception was changed. His whole mindset was changed. Maybe it was the word of God being read or being proclaimed over him that reminded him of a key truth. Maybe, maybe he wasn't even able to sing with the congregation, but just hearing the voices of God's people gathered together, singing the truth, affirming the truth, maybe that's what pressed the truth deeper into his heart. Whatever, we, whatever it was for Asaph, it was through corporate worship, through going to church. As ordinary as, and as unimpressive and as mundane as that sounds, it was through worship that Asaph tasted for himself God's goodness. And I want you to think about the state that Asaph was in before this. Like there's no way based on his doubts, his confusion, his feelings that he wanted to wake up and get out of bed and go to corporate worship that morning. If he were to base his decision based on his feelings, he wouldn't have gone. But he did go. He made himself go. And he was changed and he was restored. He was brought back to his right mind. Why? Uh, Paul David Tripp has a really good quote where he says, Corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that's a celebration of another. Corporate worship is not about you. It points you away from yourself into Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, everything from Monday to Saturday is driving you to think constantly that it's all about you. And envy plays right into that. And you're constantly comparing yourselves to others and trying to get ahead. But corporate worship is the antidote. It, it tells you it's not about you. You were made to worship and adore and celebrate another. And so if Asaph were here, he'd implore you, like, you can't afford to neglect public worship. God has given this to us, this ordinary channel, as a means of grace to communicate his grace to us, and it's for our good. We need it. It, it brought him out of that funk that he was in, and it brought him to sanity. So from this point on in the psalm, Asaph begins to explode with joy. Why? What is he caught sight of? He remembers how the story ends. When he goes into the temple, he remembers how the story ends. It's like watching a rerun of that instant classic college football game with a friend. And let's say in this scenario, the night before, you've watched this game live. You were there, and it was awesome. But your friend hasn't seen it, and he doesn't know the results. So you decide to watch it together. And so you know how the game goes. You know that for three quarters or however long, that your team gets pounded. But you also know that they came back in the end to win it all. 
And so as you watch together the first three quarters, your friend is in agony, right? He's watching all the interceptions, the fumbles, the penalties, and he's in agony, but you're calm. And actually, you're bubbling up with excitement, even as you watch this, these negative things happening, because you know the end. You know that the story is about to be flipped, that those who are in agony, those who are suffering and in shame are about to be the ones who storm the field in sheer joy. You know the end, and that brings comfort. That brings joy. So in the sanctuary, Asaph has discerned the end of the wicked. And that end is judgment. They are the ones that are on slippery, slippery ground. Their house is on sand and will be swept away in a moment. Their shalom, the shalom that Asaph himself envied earlier, he says that's just like a bad dream when you wake up. It's, it's not real. It doesn't last. It's all fleeting. And there's no reason to be envious of them in light of eternity. Their joy will run out. Their portion, as Daniel 12, 2 says, their portion is everlasting shame. But he also realizes his own end, his own afterward. So what is it? In verse 26, or excuse me, verse 24, he says, you will receive me to glory. That's his end. It's, it's, it's glory. It's finally being rid of our self-absorption, of our sin, of our pride, of our envy. It's finally being freed to enjoy God at our greatest capacity and to enjoy others and their gifts and their talents without an ounce of envy. It, it's seeing God face to face. It's finally getting the desire of your heart, your portion forever. It's having God as your God and as your portion, and as your treasure forever. And so if that's your end, if that's how your story ends, then that has nuclear strength truths, nuclear strength implications for you in the here and now. And, and Asaph walks through several, several of those. He says, with, with God as your portion, you can say, nevertheless, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So he's saying, despite my stupidity, despite my sinning and me knowing better, you are nevertheless with me. You're holding my hand. You're keeping me, protecting me, working your grace in me. You never let me go. No one can snatch me out of your hand. And what about my future? He says in the next verse, you are my guide. Uh, you guide me with your counsel. No matter what situation I find myself in, you are sovereign over it and you are my guide. You will not forsake me, but will lead me all the way into your presence, into glory. So if God is your portion, then you're loved with a love that will not let you go. You're grasped, you're guided, and you're glorified. So these truths lead Asaph to probably the most beautiful poetry in this whole psalm. He says it in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever.
He's saying, you can have it all. The comfort, the health, the wealth, the fame, the good life, the shalom of the, of the wicked that I was envying. You can have it all. Like, I'm, I'm over it. I don't want the good life if God is not my God, if God is not my portion. And can you say that? That whatever version of the good life your envy is holding out for you, can you say, like, next to God, that's worth nothing? In him I have everything I need. Can you say that? So at this point you may be thinking, okay, so I see that God is, is worthy of my worship. But how could I possibly use this personal pronoun, my, in the words my portion, calling God my portion? I mean, isn't that a little presumptuous? Does God even want me? You've got to think, I'm pretty wicked. My heart fails me pretty often. I lose focus. I, I lose my perspective. I doubt God's goodness all the time. Surely my end is with the wicked, right? And so I would say to you, like, okay, let's, let's, let's go back to this idea of worship. You know, that this word worship comes from an old English word, and the root of it is worth. And so by definition, to, when you're worshiping something, that, that you're acknowledging its worth. So how do you determine the worth of something? Well, the old saying goes, something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. So that's the case right now in the, in the Auburn housing market, you know. People are willing to pay quite a bit um, for whatever house because they judge it worth it to live here. So what determines my worth what determines your worth? So we have to ask the question, what was someone willing to pay for it? What was someone willing to pay for it? So in the gospel, we see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is of himself of infinite value and worth, left heaven and took on flesh and lived a perfect life without sin in your place. And he died your death on the cross taking your wrath, your sin, your punishment. And he died the death of the wicked so that all who believe in him might have life. And so he considered it worth the trip to go through all that. He considered you worth giving up his life. And so therefore, if you are in Christ, this is saying you are worth the blood of Jesus, which is of infinite value. That's, that's your value that's your worth. In the gospel, Jesus is saying to you, you are my portion forever. I'm not ushering in the new heavens and the new earth without you in it with me forever in glory. I went to the cross. I rose again to secure this destiny for you forever. I want you to be near me. You are my portion. So you see, Asaph, in his envy, thought God was withholding. And, and that's the deception of perception that envy creates. But God, by God's grace, Asaph catches a glimpse of the kind, loving heart of God. And so I'll close with this. Sinclair Ferguson says that um, when we are finally brought to glory, when we see Jesus face to face and you experience his delight, his smile, his love for you, the last negative words that will ever come out of your mouth will be, Lord, 
if I had just known you were this kind, I would have done so much more. And Jesus will say, hush, no more negative words will be spoken. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of my presence. Our text is urging us, make Jesus your portion and your life will be made content. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your extraordinary patience and grace and mercy towards us when we lose our focus, when we so unjustly accuse you of not being good. We thank you that you're patient with us in those moments. We thank you for the grace that wakes us up to the reality of your love, that you are our good Father and that you care for us. We pray that you would press that more and more into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.